0: Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Luke.
1: Well, the Passover by this point is long finished, the time of preparation for the coming trial that the enemy, Jesus had said, hey, the enemy has asked permission to toss all you guys up in the air and he's been given it. Well, the time of preparation for that trial, it's, it's over. It's run out. The lies of the enemy will now give way to reality. When the enemy tosses everyone's life into the air, where they land will depend on who they've been leaning on up to that point. How do we avoid being that kind of a Christian, using the tools that God gives to us for our own purposes? Well, turn to James chapter 3 with me. We need to live out what God says we're to do. We need to live out God's commands. We need to be focused on that first. You know, it's easy to to say, well, if I were in charge, you know, or or if, if they came to me, or, you know, if I was in that situation, this is what I would do. Okay, that's great. What about the situations you are in, though? What about your marriage, your parenting, your walk with the Lord, your witnessing? Where are you at with your conduct? It starts with living out what God says I am to do first instead of worrying about what everybody else needs to do. For it says in verse 14, if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, then you should not boast. In other words, you, you, you know what to do, that you've, you've got it figured out. Don't lie against the truth. For that kind of wisdom, that kind, type of thinking, that type of conclusion making, those type of answers, it does not descend from above, from the Lord, but it's earthly, sensual, self-oriented. It's devilish. For where envying and strife is, that's, there is a confusion in every evil work. You know, If you're looking at a situation, you know, well, if I were in charge, or you know, if I was in that situation, okay, that, well, that's being not birthed from God. That's being birthed from somewhere in here that comes from an, a heart that's filled with strife and envy. It comes from a heart that's filled with bitterness over the fact that you're not in that situation, that you don't get to make that decision. Verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure. The word there, pure, refers to motive. First off, we need to live out what God says I'm to do first. But secondly, I need to live out what God says to do. Not so people see me doing it, but because I want to please God. I'm not to live out what God says to do so everyone looks around and goes, wow, what a godly man that is. Wow, he just is always doing what God says. The reason that we're called in, I think it's Colossians 3, to be forgiving and merciful and compassionate towards each other is because if we knew everything that was going on in here and everything that we did, we'd not want to feel that way towards one another. We would look at each other and go, you're a complete failure, loser. So God urges us before we even get to know someone, and he says, be forgiving, compassionate, kind, you know, toward the brethren, our heart's mindset should be geared towards not pointing out their failures and going, "Wow, why did they? Why would they do something like that?" But rather, more towards the mindset of, "Man, I I need to pray for them. So I need to live out what God says, not so people see I'm doing it. I, I, I'm not supposed to live this life so people think I'm spiritual and then they'll come to me for wisdom. I don't know. I think I had a conversation with someone about this this week, but you know, I, I remember when I was questioning my call as a pastor the church was young and it was struggling and and uh and, and I thought you know maybe I'm just not called to this and, and when I started sharing this with a couple people and and most of them they just kind of chuckled and they said well you're a pastor it's who you are what do you mean well it doesn't matter wherever you are you're 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 helping sheep you know you're you're pouring into sheep's lives you didn't need a congregation for that so yeah maybe things are struggling right now but you it's who you are you know now, I didn't have to go around with a sign that said, I want to be a pastor someday. You know? Or, hey, you know, like pe- people used to come to Pastor Chuck and they would say, I'm called to be an elder. Or I'm called to be a deacon. And he would go, okay, go deek. <laughs> go eld, you know. In other words, you don't need the title, you know. You don't, you don't need the title to go off and say, what's an elder? It's someone who cares for the spiritual needs of the congregation. You know, you don't need a title to do that. You don't need a title to pour into people's hearts. You don't, you don't need a title of deacon to go out and serve the practical needs of the congregation. Do you, do you know what I keep the, my ear to the ground for as a pastor who's looking for leaders or looking for people to pour into and invest in in a leadership perspective? I'm looking for who everyone else is talking about. Not them coming to me and saying, I have a call like this on my life. If they're coming to me and saying, I've got a call in my life and I've never heard of them before outside of just greeting them and praying for them personally i've never heard anyone else mention their name yeah it begs the question if you can't handle pastoring one person why would you think you could handle 20 or 30 or 100 well if i was the pastor of that mega church man it'd be i'd be doing this if i was the leader of that women's ministry i'd be doing this okay well can you can you lead your daughter can you lead your son so I'm not going to live out what God says so people see me doing it, but from a pure heart. If you want to avoid what Peter did here, I didn't do it from a pure heart. It just says, I want to please you, Lord. And then next, we see all these attributes. It's peaceable. It's not stirring up strife. It's gentle, kind, easy to be entreated. The word there means, like, if you... Are sharing something with somebody, and then they explain something to you and give you their perspective, and you go, Okay, okay, I get it, I get it. I can, I'm flexible here. That's what it means easy to be entreated. That you're not just someone who only speaks, you're someone also who listens. I used to formulate all my opinions before I heard someone out when I was younger, a young pastor in particular. They'd come, and I think, Well, I've been watching them, you know, I've kind of got them figured out. And man, I, I was wrong nine out of ten times. I don't think that anymore. In fact, I've tried. Stop trying to figure out what's wrong with everyone. Now I try to think, how can I help that person, Lord? You know, how can I pray for them? How can I be a blessing to my friend? And if that means correcting them in an issue as they talk to me, whatever, hey, that, then uh, so be it. That's what friends do at times, right? But not ahead of time. I'm thinking, oh, they're opening up to me. <claps> Woo, I've been waiting to do this for a while. <laughs> no, to listen, Be willing to go, Okay. I see your perspective there, you know? That's what easy to be entreated means. Full of mercy, not ready to give it to them, but ready to be compassionate towards them. And good fruits, and without partiality. In other words, you don't, you don't treat certain people one way and other people differently, without hypocrisy. And, and it'll show, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. So we need to have, if we want to avoid using the tools that God has to lop off, given us to lop off ears, we need to... Have a kind, gentle, flexible, fair, and merciful attitude towards others. So I need to live out what God says I'm to do first. Focus on me. Then I need to live out what God says out of purity. Not so people can see I'm doing it, but because I want to please him. And then lastly, have this attitude, this kind, gentle, flexible, fair, and merciful attitude towards others. Because when you come from a mindset that if I were in charge, I'd do things differently or those people need a good talking to you, I can guarantee you that you're going to sense God leading you to do something. He is definitely not. I guarantee you, Peter is sitting there thinking, this is my moment. God, this is what I was created for. You know, you know they, There's all sorts of mercy me and, and songs playing through his head going, this is it. This is God's leading in my life. You know, I've had people come to me and say, you know, God's called me to, to speak to so-and-so about this. And I'm starting to to them, and I go, you don't have a clue what's going on. That is not birth from God at all. You think you've got this spiritual spidey sense from God? That's not a spiritual spidey sense. That's your flesh. Because when we stop trying to figure out what's wrong with everyone and we say, Lord, how can I help them? How can I be a blessing to my friend? Then you can hear clearly from the Lord, When he wants you to challenge somebody, when he wants you to rebuke somebody, when he wants you to encourage somebody, and when he wants you to pray for somebody, and what I found is most of the time his answer is way different than what my old pseudo spiritual sense from God would have told me. Hearing from God, according to these verses, has way more to do with character than it has to do with gifting. I've had people come and tell me, "Well, I, I just I hear from the Lord. I don't even know what that means." First off, it's devilish which is what the scripture says there because it's like the devil he wants to be like god but there's something devilish about us that we in our hearts our wicked hearts that we want somehow to be special like god loving us does not make us special enough we want something desperate about us to set us apart from everybody else like i'm i'm unique it's not that you're not unique and it's not that you're not special that's not what i'm saying But when we're looking for something inside of us that inherently like God set us apart and and made us super spiritual compared to someone else in some area to feel good or to feel loved or to feel like we're of value, as long as that's somewhere in here, you're gonna lop off ears. You're gonna lop off ears. A lot of times when someone who's younger in the Lord comes to me and they sense a call from God or they sense something like that, I'll tell them, I say, you're not ready. If you go out now, you're gonna hurt a lot of people. Those are the words I use almost always. You're going to hurt a lot of people because you think you have something to offer right now and the reality is God has everything to offer. You're just a vessel. What makes me special is that God goes, I want you to be my vessel. <laughs> I want to use you. I love you. I died for you. I, I, didn't, I didn't just die for the conglomerate of believers or I didn't just die for the conglomerate of the world. So I am thinking about you. I love you. I died for you but he doesn't have to make us better than someone else in some area to make us unique or special or or worthy of love. So hearing from God is way more to do with character than it does with gifting. For if Peter had waited for Jesus to answer the question that the other disciples asked instead of yelling, carpe diem, you know, and swinging a sword, he might have been spared this blunder. I guarantee you Peter was not aiming for an ear. Talk about disappointment. Talk about falling on your face. Uh, you know, Lord should we strike, you know, and he's just going at it. He's not aiming for an ear. When his efforts are done and he opens his eyes and he looks at his fallen foe, he sees an ear. Talk about falling on your face. What did that accomplish? Well, Jesus finally answers their question and He says, suffer ye thus far, and he touched his ear and healed him. The word phrase, suffer uh, ye thus far, means permit them to go this far. In other words, let them do what they're here to do. Lord, should we strike with a sword? No, that's not why I told you to take the sword. Let them do what they're here to do. Now, Luke is the only writer who mentions this healing. He's a doctor, and it's probably important for him to mention that this guy's poor ear, you didn't have to go earless because of Peter's blunder. And, and here we see that Jesus actually lives out what James talked about, that wisdom that comes from above. He's in control. He's humble. He's meek. He's living out the way that it should be. There's no, no emotion here that causes him to be out of control. That There's no sense of, I'm going to seize the moment, seize the day. This is my moment. No. He has no ill will towards these soldiers and servants, even though they're here to arrest him. In fact, he's about to go and die for them too. And to prove that love for them, he undoes Peter's ugly work. Even though the enemy has thrown everyone's life up in the air, do you see how Jesus is entirely in control of himself and an entirely in control of the situation despite its awfulness? See, unlike Peter and the rest, Jesus was prayed up. He didn't tackle this awful situation in light of the enemy's lies to him, or the enemy's scare tactics. He tackled the situation in light of his father's love and his father's plan, because that's what he had prayed. Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. I'm, I'm ready to opt out of this. But if not, your will be done, not my will. He tackled this challenging situation, this awful situation in light of his father's love for him and in light of his father's plan. And the proof of that is that while he's the one being arrested, he's still the one reaching out here. For then Jesus said, verse 52, unto the chief priests and the captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him. All these religious leaders and all the, the temple soldiers here. He says to them, be you come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you didn't stretch forth your hands against me. The word thief there, it's not thief in the sense of, a, you know, a, a, someone out of the shadows trying to, you know, uh, you know attack you or pick your pocket or anything like that. The word here actually means insurrectionist or rebel. He says, have you come to arrest me with armed soldiers because I'm plotting a rebellion against Rome? I mean, do you expect me to put up a fight here? If so, you do not understand what I'm about. And then he points out the absurdity of their justification for the arrest. When I was with you daily in the temple, it's not like I'm hiding. I'm not off in a cave training soldiers to rebel against Rome. I've been here the whole time. I've been in plain sight. I don't have soldiers. I have disciples. Why on earth would you bring armed soldiers to arrest someone like me? See, Jesus challenges their reason for arresting him because he knows they have no legal reason to arrest him. Like he did with Judas, he's giving them a last chance to repent. And then we have that little colon there, the two dots, which means Jesus waits for an answer. And they remain silent and give no answer to his question, to his charge, that you're arresting me illegally. You have no reason to be here. You're treating me like an insurrectionist when I'm nothing like that. When they give no answer to that, he says, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. You can almost hear the disappointment in Jesus's words. You know, he confronts them with their sin, that they're there for pride and arrogance and jealousy. And, and. He waits for an answer, and there's none forthcoming. No repentance. The word but here, but this is your hour, but is the strongest form of contrast in the Greek. They are here for the exact opposite of justice. They are here for wicked reasons. This is your hour. This is the business of self instead of the business of God. It's the power, the authority, the jurisdiction of darkness. This isn't about legal matters at all. This is about envy. This is about payback. This is the jurisdiction of evil. So verse 54, they took him, they arrested him, and they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. Archaeologists recently discovered this home a few years ago. It was a palace filled with luxuries rivaled only by King Herod's palaces. And so can you see why these leaders felt challenged by Jesus? They were living it up, man. They had the people in the palm of their hand. And Jesus had challenged them, challenged the way that they were living, challenged the way that they led, and it put everything that they had at risk. Now, it says Peter followed afar off. And then verse 55 says, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard of the palace here, Peter sat down among them. So he's following afar off. How does he end up inside? Well, John, the apostle, knew the high priest, so he was welcomed to accompany the soldiers. Peter follows at a distance, though, not with the group taking Jesus to the high priest's palace. Anytime I follow Jesus at a distance, I'm going to get into trouble, right? We're not called to follow Jesus from afar. We're called to follow Jesus closely. So why in the world is Peter following Jesus from afar? Well, he did try to kill someone in that group. I don't imagine think he's a welcome member of the traveling party, Peter's this is my moment now looks like the worst decision he's ever made because if he's caught anywhere near this group, it will probably cost him his life. And that's exactly why Jesus warned Peter. He said, Peter, the enemy is going to tempt you more than everyone else. And Peter is in the thick of it right now. He is terrified. He is scared. He is following from afar because he thinks I have blown it. They're going to kill me if they see me. And so when he gets there, the uh, other gospel writers tell us that John... He's Originally, he's denied entrance, but John goes back to tell the slave girl watching the entrance to let him in. And at that point, Peter goes into the courtyard, but he does not go into the judgment hall with John where Jesus is being tried. Instead, he sits down to warm himself with those responsible for arresting Jesus. He goes and he warms himself by the enemy's campfire. The slave girl who lets him in has a suspicion about him though, and so she stays with him after letting him in. And while staring at him, she figures it out. He is one of Jesus' disciples. It says, but a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looking upon him. She's just staring at him. And finally she blurts out, this man was also with him. Now, I don't know if she's leveling an accusation or signaling the guards. I have no clue why she says it or she's just pointing it out. But it puts Peter on the spot. And Peter, what does he do when she blurts this out? Peter denied him. The word there means to disavow any association with a person. He disavows any association with Jesus, saying, Woman, I know him not in the perfect tense. It means I have never known him. I have never even heard of him, because the word know here doesn't refer to heart knowledge, gnosko, but it's oida, which means head knowledge. I don't even know who he is. I've never even heard of the man. Is this the same person who just earlier that night proudly declared he didn't need to grow anymore, but he was ready, had everything he needed to die for Jesus? What in the world is going on? See, it's not that Peter didn't mean it when he said it to Jesus, but this is the danger of leaning on my own understanding. See, Peter wasn't prayed up because he spent more time rationalizing in his mind why Jesus was wrong about him and why his understanding about himself was correct. I mean, Jesus. I'm, Deny. I'm not going to deny him. And so this left Peter flailing in his own strength when the temptation really hit, instead of the Lord's strength. And his own strength was no match for the fear Satan assaulted him with. Have you ever been assaulted by the enemy's fear? If you're in your own strength, you're going to crumble. You are naturally no match for that. I don't care how courageous a person you are, we need the Lord. That fear, that's what kept him following at a distance. It's what kept him warming himself at the enemy's campfire instead of confessing his pride and repenting. And when I'm following Jesus at a distance and hanging out in places I shouldn't be, I'm capable of anything. And so in verse 58, it says, after a little while, someone else saw him and said, you're also of them, you're one of the disciples. But Peter said, man, I am not. Now, why are people recognizing Peter? Well, Peter was always with Jesus. Of course, people are gonna recognize him. But Peter not only denies Jesus, like Judas, he betrays all of his friends, including John, who's John is risking his life being at Jesus's trial right now. He betrays all of them by saying, I'm not one of them. And then the culmination, verse 59. And about an hour later, after another, confidently affirmed the word there means to keep on insisting firmly, saying of a truth, this fellow was with him for he's a Galilean. This guy keeps saying, they're there by the campfire. This guy keeps going, no, I think those other two were right. I know you're one of his disciples and I can prove it. Your accent, you're a Galilean. And this man's persistence sends Peter into a tirade. Peter said, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. The other gospel writers tell us that Peter stood up and cried out with an oath saying, on my oath, God, strike me dead. If I know anything of what you're talking about. And as the word sprung from his mouth, it says, while he had spake, the cock crew, the rooster began to crow its morning song. Peter's demonstrative action, standing up, calling God to kill him, strike him dead right there if he's ever met Jesus. certainly is a demonstrative action and it caught everyone's attention, including the people in the trial in the next room, including Jesus. And so the Lord turned and the Bible says he looked upon Peter and at that moment, The word there looked upon means to look directly at somebody. He looked right at Peter. People may have turned to see what the commotion was, but Jesus knew exactly what it was. And he looked right at Peter. And when Jesus did, the reality of what Peter had done, the depths of his betrayal came crashing in. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him before the cock crow, you shall deny me thrice. The word there remembered, it's in the passive, which means he hadn't even thought about it up to this point. It was out of his mind. As he's doing it, he's not even remembering Jesus said it. But it's only when Jesus turned to look at him that he was caused to remember, passive, caused to remember how he had said to him before the cock crow, you'll deny me three times. Peter ignored Jesus' words initially and the entirety of the evening, but now those words come rushing back and surely the condemnation of the enemy also came rushing in. Yo, good job, Peter. You are the greatest of the apostles for sure. You surely should be the one who rules next to Jesus in his kingdom. What a brave man you are. And Peter went out weeping bitterly. It says, end wept bitterly. No, he went out weeping bitterly. He, the phrase there means to burst into tears. He burst into tears as he ran out of there as fast as he could. Peter doesn't strike me as someone who cries easily. This was crushing. And Peter would never be the same after this betrayal. That's a pretty down note to end on. But you know, when we look at this whole passage of Scripture, everyone in it leaned on their own understanding. Judas, who chose money over repentance. The religious leaders, who chose wickedness over justice. And Peter, who chose selfish ambition over humility. Everyone leaned on their own understanding. Everyone except Jesus. This was a night of great darkness. And there wasn't a single person ready for it except Jesus. Jesus, and this is why Jesus alone is worthy to take the scroll and loose the seals. When it says, there is no man found under heaven or in earth who could take the scroll and loose the seals. And John wept, and the the elder came by and said, don't weep, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy to take the scroll and to loose the seals, for he alone lived up to God's standard. Instead of basking in the glory of that perfectly lived life, you know, Jesus, he could have waltzed right into heaven any moment and said, God, I did it, Dad, I did it. But instead of doing that, he decided to die the death we deserved for our rebellious lives. So the lesson we learn from this, above everything, is that Jesus is worthy. Amen? He is worthy. He never does anything wrong. You and I may never face a night of darkness like this. And as the worship team comes up, I want to close with this. We may never face a night of darkness like this. I don't know if ever in history a night like this will exist again. But we are faced with the same choice when the enemy attacks. Will we rest in our own wisdom or will we trust the Lord? And so my encouragement to you this morning is, trust the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. Take him into the account. The Bible says he'll direct your paths. You'll avoid lopping off the ears with the tools that God gave you to serve him. You'll be able to use the tools that God gave you to be a blessing to others.